And uh, I hope you have a Bible, and if you do, we'll open up to John chapter 12 tonight. We're going to uh, do what we did Sunday night, which is cover uh, a whole a whole block of the book of John. We began last time in chapter 6, went to chapter 12, so we'll uh, cover about a similar amount of of distance tonight. We'll begin with a passage in John 12. We'll read that in just a few minutes, but uh, I want to kind of set the stage for us or kind of get us in uh, around the same mindset. because it, when I read the Gospels, and if you've been reading the Gospels this week, hopefully you've, you've maybe thought about this or maybe you've, you've uh, let yourself kind of uh, imagine what it was like for the people that were there following Jesus in real life. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever imagine what it was like for the people that were eyewitnesses to the things that we get to read about? And it's amazing to read about it, but can you just imagine what it was like? to have been there with him, walking beside him, following him. You know, we've heard the stories, we've read the accounts, we've romanticized it all, and we've sang songs about it, we've heard sermons about it. And, you know, part of what makes it difficult for us to know what it really would have been like um, is because we know so much about Jesus. And you might think, well, why would that hurt us? Uh, Because the original followers and the original crowds that accompanied Jesus, they didn't know what we know. So part of it for them, they they were getting it all in real time they were kind of soaking all of it in and it was a little bit more, uh, you know, they were a little bit more in awe about it. They were a little bit more spellbound by it because they just didn't know what we know. You know, whereas we have the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the New Testament that expounds and explains what was done and what happened. We have the letters of the disciples. Um, We have so much information and explanations about what they saw. And of course, just what they saw was amazing and convincing in some ways. But with us and our information, you know, we're, we're a little bit better off because we can read the stories and we can kind of interpret it. You know, we know what Jesus meant when he said this, whereas they were often looking at him like, you know, what are you talking about? And they were very confused at times. And sometimes they didn't get what he meant. And as we're going to read about tonight, uh, a lot of them didn't understand what was going on. Um, you know, it's because we've read the account. It's because we've um, comprised all the information and we've heard sermons and, and you know, we've kind of bottled all this down to be very, you know, memorizable and digestible. Um, Um, You know, we would love to go back and take an afternoon and and sit down at Jesus' feet and and follow him and and see it with our own eyes, hear it with our own ears. But, you know, if you imagine what it would be like to take a time machine and go back in time, um, there would be a catch to it all. That if we went back in time and we began to follow Jesus in the flesh and we began to, to go where he was in his earthly ministry, we wouldn't be able to take with us what we know. So as exciting as it would be for us to go back in time, we wouldn't take with us what we know about Jesus because we'd be getting it all for the first time with the people that got it there in the original days. You know, we've heard the Sermon on the Mount and we've saw, we've heard the vision of the church at Caesarea Philippi. We've, uh, you know, we've read the stories about the wedding at Cana and the festival at Bethesda, the feeding of the 5,000. We've, uh, we've, we've, understood what the Bethany was like when Lazarus was buried and rose again. And, you know, we've been at the parade at Palm Sunday with the scriptures. But if we went back in time, we would go back and we would go back without the knowledge of what we know because Jesus, when he walked on earth during those three years, there was no gospel to check and to understand. There was no New Testament. There was no Bible as we know it to say, well, that's what that means. So uh, if we went back, it would just be Jesus and his miracles. And of course that would be remarkable in its own way. There would just be Jesus and his parables and his sermons and his demonstrations. And while there would have been plenty for us to come to know 
with saving faith. There'd be plenty, of, uh, plenty revealed to us for us to put faith in Jesus. We'd be seeing it all through eyes that were far less prepared to take it all in and interpret it all the way we've come to in our day. So I guess I say all that to say this. It's not, it's not too far-fetched to imagine that our experience following, following Jesus in his earthly ministry, it probably would have been similar to those that we read about in the Gospels. That if we went back in time without what we know, and we were in the shoes of Peter, James, and John, we were in the shoes of the crowds that followed him anywhere that we read about, our experience and our response would probably be very similar to their experience and their response, for better or for worse. Uh, so we don't really have to imagine what it would have been like. We have written accounts of what it was like from those who were there. And according to their report, according to their report, it would have been everything we could possibly dream about. Jesus was like an, a traveling celebrity and he was bigger than anything that had ever happened on earth to that point in time. Uh, because he, uh, partly because he came on the scene without much anticipation. People, you know, there were angels that spoke at his birth, but not really many people heard that, right? Nobody expected this carpenter from Nazareth to become this miracle worker and this wonder worker and this prophet. Uh, the crowds following after him, sun up to sun down, it, it, you know, we see the paparazzi follow people in today's world, kings and queens and leaders and politicians and, and Hollywood celebrities, but nothing would compare to what it was like around Jesus. And, and, and the thing about Jesus, he was so gracious to his fans and his followers. He was so accommodating. Just a couple snapshots that Matthew tells us from his gospel. He went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And can you just imagine what this was like? Just masses, mobs of people following him. And if anybody was sick in the crowd, he would speak the word. And, and, and according to Matthew, on, on, on this occasion, everybody was healed. Everybody felt what it was like to be in the presence of God. Matthew tells us this in chapter nine, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus was never, uh, was never like a celebrity maybe we've heard in our day. He, he was never like a hero that had bad days. Jesus was always compassionate. He was always present for people. When they were looking for him, he was, he was there for them. And even whenever he, he tried to, to get away from people at times, he was always compassionate. Matthew tells us in chapter 14, when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, which is the Gentile territory. When the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick. And he implored him that, he, that they might touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well, I mean, can you just imagine what it would have been like 2,000 years ago to be one of those people in that crowd? And of course, there were, those are just snapshots of what it was like. That, that, that's just a couple different episodes uh, from his ministry. The Gospels tell us that Jesus was pretty much sought after. He couldn't even have, he, he never had any alone time uh, unless he used supernatural power to get away from people. There were times where Jesus just had to vanish from people and he didn't often use his powers to just do stuff like that. But clearly he could if he wanted to. But there are a couple episodes 
episodes where Jesus literally has to just disappear because he can't get away from the crowds. Not because he didn't want to be around people, but he had stuff to do or he needed to take his disciples to pray somewhere. You know, that famous episode of Jesus and Nicodemus when they met at night, the reason why they met at night was probably because that was the only chance Jesus had to get away from people and he had to be kind of pretty secretive about where he was going because if people had found out he was there, they would have barged in the room. Because there's one episode where he's having dinner with a very famous Pharisee named Simon and people just barge in the house. And, and the people had no manners when it came to Jesus. When they heard Jesus was having dinner somewhere, we're walking through the door. We don't care if it's your house. We don't care if it's your personal, private, you know, secured or guarded place. We're breaking in the, the, the window. On one point, they come down through the ceiling of a building to get to Jesus. And, and nobody expected that. So when people found out Jesus was somewhere, it was insane and wild. I mean, we're coming through no matter what, we gotta get to Jesus. There are several times when Jesus would be in a new town or a new place where he wasn't yet detected and he would say things to people and he would say, hey, can we just keep this between us? And, and people get really theological and really spiritual about that. But the reason why he would tell people, hey, can we keep this quiet for a little bit? It's because he wanted to have time to build relationships because he knew if people find out about this, I'm not gonna have a chance to talk to anybody one-on-one. -on -one. Mark tells us this happened early on in his ministry. Jesus sternly warned, charged a man and sent him away at once and said, see that you say nothing to anyone about what I just did to you. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news. He just couldn't help himself. But this is what Mark tells us. Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was in desolate places. People were coming to him from every direction. And again, he wasn't mad about it. That was the reality that, it, that, that was around Jesus. Nobody let him alone even in the middle of the night. People were coming to him from every direction. Now, there was no downtime. He was constantly having to withdraw to the mountains just to get a little time to breathe and regroup from his disciple, with his disciples. It was like this for almost three consecutive years. Can you imagine 1,000 days in a row of nonstop mobs of people coming at you from every direction? I mean, could you handle that? I couldn't handle that. Nonstop, 1,000 days in a row. He was always in the center of thousands and thousands of people. You know, from the day he began his ministry at Nazareth to Palm Sunday, when he announced himself as God's anointed to when he was paraded into Jerusalem as the Messiah, everybody always wanted to be with Jesus. Everybody wanted to meet and mingle with Jesus, of course, until they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Palm Sunday in many ways was the pinnacle. It was the apex. It was the tipping point of Jesus' ministry. It was the day that was supposed to be the culmination of years of proof and prophecy. Now he would be rolling out his kingdom plans. He had thousands on his side. What could possibly stop him? He had enough people to form several legions of soldiers compared to what Rome had. Nobody could stop Jesus if he just said the word. They were there to fight for him. But it turns out Jesus' words after the parade halted the movement, not kickstarted it. In a matter of hours, Jesus' movement went from the hottest it had ever been to ice cold. Sunday afternoon, he was given a parade and rolled the red carpet out and said, Jesus, we are here for you. We know what you're about to do and we are ready for it. And within just a few hours, they all 
were gone. You know, it's rarely talked about, but John was there and he actually is the only one that wrote about how it all went down. Now, we read Sunday, John 12, verse 12 through 19, which is the account of the, of the Palm Sunday parade. And look at verse 19 and listen to what the Pharisees say as they're watching the thousands of people in Jerusalem. They're not there for Passover. They're not there to celebrate the Passover. They're not there to give the Pharisees and the priests and the leaders of, the, of religion attention. They're there for Jesus. And look at what their response is to this parade. You see that we are accomplishing nothing. The world has gone after him. So the, 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 the attitude, the feeling, the mood in Jerusalem is Jesus can do whatever he wants. We are helpless. We have no power to stop what he's about to start. Now, John tells us that there was a request from some people who had come from far, far away that actually launched Jesus into a sermon that would alter the course of not only the day, but would alter the course of history what was set up to be a day of victory for not just Jesus, but his disciples, turns out much differently. Verse number 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Now, it's not ironic that the Pharisees say the world has gone after him. And then in verse 20, there are people from Greece that have come to see Jesus. So literally, the world was turning towards this Jewish carpenter. The world was turning toward Jesus. So these Greeks are there and Jesus hears that they, they want to talk to Jesus and everybody's just, everybody wants to talk to Jesus. So when John says there were certain Greeks that wanted to talk to him, it wasn't that they were the only ones, it's that they were ones of many that wanted to talk to him. But of course, these guys got to him. They came to Philip who was, with, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee and asked him saying, sir, we would like to see, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew and uh, in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. So these guys used their inside connection to get to Jesus. And I think the reason why Philip and Andrew wanted these Greeks to come to Jesus, because, hey, this looks good. These guys are from Greece. These guys are from the center of the pagan world and they want to talk to Jesus. Do you hear that, guys? We have just celebrated him as our Messiah. He's about to install his kingdom. Look out, Rome. We have the world on our side. So they take these guys up on the stage they had for Jesus because they've been you know, giving him wreaths and giving him all kind of flowers. You know, they rolled him in on the donkey and these Greeks come up on the stage and <laughs> Jesus doesn't even really talk to them. That's what's incredible. Jesus hardly ever answered people's questions. Verse 23, Jesus answered them. They didn't really ask the question. So he says, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. And everybody's thinking we have been waiting for this because when they heard that, they thought this is it. 24, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And this is the point when everybody in the crowd started going, oh no. Or Peter and James and John started going, oh no, here he goes again. He's doing the sermon about dying. Jesus, you, we went over this with you. Don't preach the sermon about dying. We don't know what you mean about that, that sermon about dying and coming back alive better. Don't talk about that. This is the kingdom. This is the day that you're gonna tell Rome to get lost. This is the day we've been waiting for. Please don't do the sermon about putting something in the ground and it being better off because that's not how we see things and that's not how anybody sees things. But Jesus says, okay, I, I, can't, I can't stop, guys. 
If it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I mean, Jesus, come on. If you love your life, you're gonna lose it. If you think this life is something to preserve, you're already losing it. But if you would give up your life, you will gain something much better. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So Jesus is about to go in a really wild direction. My, verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I came to this hour. Why is your soul troubled, Jesus? I mean, this is your victory. This is your day. This is the, the greatest day we've all ever imagined. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and, and saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So everybody was expecting this to be a big spectacle of Jesus installing his kingdom. And, 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 and it's still a spectacle, but it's not going the way they thought it would go because Jesus is talking about stuff that they didn't think he would talk about. But he's not dumb. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that, they, that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Which made people feel very uneasy, but they're thinking, okay, the ruler of the world, that's Rome. That's the evil empire. So we, we like what you're talking about, Jesus. Verse 31 Verse 32, and if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, well, I, I will draw all peoples to myself. And, and apparently he had to explain himself because they thought, well, okay, lift you up like on a, on a throne, lift you up like on a big pedestal. I mean, we like that. But no, he said this signifying by what death he would die. And no, no, no doubt, this began to spread through the crowd and it kind of began to fester and fester and fester. And we don't know if there was a time, a pause between this. We don't know how long it lasted, but apparently it got back to Jesus that people did not really understand why he was talking about dying. And, and the people answered, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Because they understood they were, he was talking about on a cross. Who is this son of man? I mean, is this different than the Messiah? Because as long as this isn't you, Jesus, we're fine. You can, we, you know, we, somebody has to die, that's fine. Then Jesus said, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So he gives a speech and he says, I'm out. Now, I, I, I can't emphasize enough, this is, one of the, this is one of the most unexpected, and this would have left the people very uneasy, and not only uneasy, it would have left them very upset. Jesus responds to the prey and the support with a message about dying and losing what this world had clung to. He proclaims that he had come to do something different than expected, while it would indeed draw the world to him, not in the way they were hoping what it would have been like to be in the crowd that day, having followed Jesus for years, it all led up to this. This moment that in Jerusalem where Jesus was going to proclaim himself king and usher in the kingdom, at the height of it all, he crushes everyone's dreams and expectations. Maybe the deflation of the moment was great because the hype was so great. And I can't overemphasize this. People were not just disappointed, they were disgusted, they were angry, they were vengeful. Had they been fooled? 
Had Jesus just played them? I mean, he wasn't really saying gotcha because he hadn't duped them for money. I mean, he hadn't got power and then said, I'm out. He was on the verge of taking whatever he wanted and he had their support. And now he just bowed out. And why? It made no sense. John, because John had the inside scoop from Jesus, John understood why though, verse 37. Although he had done many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Now, come on, John. They don't believe in him. They just threw him a parade. They literally just saying, your king is coming. They literally just saying back in 13, Hosanna, this is the king of Israel. John, what are you saying they don't believe in him? Of course they believe in him. They just said he was the Messiah. John says, but you don't understand They believe in a version of him, but they hadn't trusted in him. You you see, they hadn't trusted in Jesus to be their savior from sin and the Lord of their life. They were just hoping he'd cater to their earthly desires. They were just hoping he would be the king they had always wanted for them. And on the off chance that that we would have remained with him, if we would have been there that day, If we would have been there that day, if we would have been in the crowd that day, what do you think we would have thought about all this? Do you think we would have responded any differently than them? This was the second time that he had rejected their request to be king. This is the second time they planned a big event and he said, I'm out. And this was the biggest scale. This humiliated them. They had literally made fools of themselves by saying, this is the king. And then now he didn't want to be the king. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. So in response, and again, this this is not overstatement they were done they were out they unfollowed Jesus at the end of Palm Sunday you see that's why it's impossible for us to really know what it would have been like if we would have been there because the odds were knowing what we know or not knowing what we know not being saved from our own fleshly and carnal desires we probably would have unfollowed the same day in the same way on the off chance that we would have remained as one of the 12, maybe there's a good chance we would have, you know, stuck it out. But there's also a good chance that we would have been like a lot of them as the story continues. So before we get into John 13, our story picks up on Wednesday evening. Jesus has reemerged to face off against the religious leaders in the temple on Monday and Tuesday. He spoke against their religion. He spoke against how they were uh, deceiving people. And he spoke about how he had come to install a true platform for people to connect to God. He came to bring Israel into true fellowship with God. He came to be the true Passover lamb. He came to usher in a different kind of kingdom though. Not confined to time or uh, one time or one place, but a spiritual reality that would span all generations. And he began to preach sermons about the kingdom of God, not about a specific place in a specific time, but the kingdom that would last generations, that would be about righteous living in an unrighteous world. By Wednesday, the religious leaders are desperate to get rid of Jesus because he has crashed their party. They don't know what he's up to. They are desperately plotting to have Jesus arrested. He's basically blaspheming the temple on the holiest week of the year. Yet, yeah, he resisted the people's request for him to be king, but they, they didn't know what he really was up to, and they had all that to use ammunition, as ammunition against him, so they were just desperate to get rid of him. They couldn't just arrest him publicly because the people, they were still worried about a riot and they thought that Rome, uh, you know, Rome already was keeping a close eye on the city, so they didn't want to make a scene. 
But when Jesus would leave the scene, with the, as the crowded as the city was, he was impossible to find. So they began to hire spies to go throughout the city and they were trying to find all the dirt they could about Jesus. Where was he and how could they get him somewhere privately? They needed a rat. They needed someone who could help pin him down and catch him off guard to build a case against him because they wanted Jesus crucified by the week's end. It turns out one of Jesus' closest followers, one of the 12, was more than willing and ready to bail out and betray Jesus. This is what Matthew tells us. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So it had to happen Thursday night. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? You see, I've only been following Jesus because I thought he was going to do something for me. And now I realize he's not the kind of Messiah I was hoping him to be. I don't even know if he's a Messiah at all, but I was only following him because I thought he was gonna help me out in this life. And it doesn't look like he's gonna help me out in this life. I wanted money, I wanted fame, I wanted fortune, I wanted power, and he's not doing any of that for me. So what will you give me if I hand him over to you? They paid him. 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he saw an opportunity to betray him. <laughs> and you know what the really the, the, the eerie thing about Judas is? The reason Judas was following Jesus became the reason he would betray Jesus. Do you see that? He followed Jesus because of what Jesus could do for him. So he betrayed Jesus because of what the temple could do for him. Would it be too controversial to say that there are still a lot of followers of Jesus who have more in common with Judas than any other disciple? Following Jesus because of what he might do for us, not spiritually, but physically, Judas was a classic opportunist. And on Thursday night, Jesus had taken the disciples to an upper chamber, hidden away from everyone. He makes it clear then once and for all that things are going different than we expected or you expected them to go. He takes on the form of a servant. He washes their feet and as they sit down for the Passover meal. He defined the heart of his ministry. He casts a vision for the future of his movement. This was all Judas could handle. At enough of the serving, enough of the sacrifice, enough of the loving. He was done. He was out. Over in John 13, verse 18, we get the inside on that story. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the sacrifice, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me and who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus said these things, he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about what, about whom he spoke. Now this was, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered and said, it's he who I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the bread, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. 
And, Judas, and Jesus said to him, what, will you, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Jesus had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things that we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the breast of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So it's getting dark, it's getting late. Peter's question, uh, in, or John's question, uh, in the entire scene's bewilderment reveals that everybody was pretty uneasy when Jesus said that one of y'all is going to betray me. And Matthew tells us that they all began to say to him one after another, is it I? Now, why would you ask Jesus, am I the one that's going to betray you unless you had thought about it? So we beat up on Judas, and again, he put himself out there for the devil to use. But everybody at the table had thought about it. Because Jesus wasn't who they thought he was. They didn't know who he was yet. They weren't sure. But he wasn't the king they were hoping for. So Jesus keeps teaching them afterwards. He starts talking about loving people and carrying on his message of love. And then Peter says, guys, I got to make a statement. Verse 36 Lord, where, where, when Jesus says, I'm going away, he says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered and said, where, I'm a, where I am going, you can't follow me. You can fo- can't follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. P- Peter, you don't understand. Just, just stay, stay with me and just keep, keep quiet. It's going to work out. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for your sake. Now, Peter often said things like this when he was, meaning the, when he was thinking the opposite. Maybe you're like that. You say things, oh, I'll never do that whenever you thought about doing that. But it makes you feel better when you say it out loud, even though you don't really mean it. Verse 38, Jesus said, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till, shall not crow till you have denied me three times. So again, nobody was safe. Not because God willed it, because their flesh was so weak. They were all leaving the door open to leave if Jesus proved any more unmessianic. They all thought about leaving. And to be candid, they were really just checked out the whole time. He began teaching on some incredible things. John 14, 15, 16, incredible, incredible stuff. But they don't pay attention to a bit of it because they were completely overwhelmed by all this that was going on. And then at the end of John 16, we're almost done, I promise, but this, I don't want you to miss this. At the end of John 16, Jesus says this, because they, they kind of wake up at the end of John 16 and they start saying, now you're making sense. And he said, I've been making sense all this time. Y'all just haven't been listening. I know you're checked out. I know you're worried. I know you're wor- upset and you don't know what's going to go on. And then he says this to him. Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, now has come that you will be scattered, each of you to his, his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. He said, guys, you don't have to pretend. I know what you're thinking. I know what you want to do. But I'm not going to be alone when you leave me. You are going to leave me, and I won't be alone. But he says to them, be of good cheer. These things I have spoken to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Even though you're going to bail on me, I'm not going to bail on you. Now, to speed things up, here we've went from thousands to 12, and now we've lost Judas. And according to Jesus, we're about to lose more. Let me explain what's going on here. There's a fine line between Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior 
and Jesus as our personalized Lord and Savior. And everybody that had been so excited about Jesus had crossed that line. And they had quit listening to what he said he was doing for them. And they had begun telling him what they wanted him to do for them. And they had begun to convince themselves that he was going to do what they wanted him to do. And again, it's easy to be critical from our perspective. But if we were there, the odds are, according to Jesus, we would have been ready to leave too. Now, in John 18, Jesus says, time for us to go. Verse eight, chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So they go up the Mount of Olives. They uh, cross the Kidron Valley to a garden where he prays, not my will but your will be done. But the rest of them are sleeping because they are scared to death and they're nervous and they're just overwhelmed by it all. Verse 2 and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met with him there, met there with his disciples. Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers with, uh, from the chief priests and Pharisees, came with, lament, uh, with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that this would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? Then they answered and said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am... Your Bible probably says he after that, but it's italicized, which means it isn't really in the Greek. It's not really in the text. What he says is in the Greek, ego eimi, or in Hebrew, Yahweh. So he doesn't say, I'm the guy you're looking for. He says the name of God because that is who Jesus is. And when he says, I am, Verse six, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Jesus is reminding Satan and his minions that their takeover is allowed. They're on a leash. They're not in charge. I am was still in control, but nobody had seen his power like this. And maybe this sent a spark of hope in the 11. Maybe they thought this is still going to work out for us. But verse 7, and he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, please don't say I am again. Please don't knock us over again. And I've told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. Notice Jesus, his main concern right now is let these guys go. Don't hurt them. Knowing what they were going to do. And that the same might be fulfilled of those who you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant's ear off, <laughs> cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I don't think he meant to cut his ear off. I think he aimed for his neck, but he was a bad swing. He probably was a good fisherman, not so much of a good swordsman. So he meant to cut the guy's head off. He cut the guy's ear off. So good try, Peter. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword up. Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Peter is fearful for his life. He showed zero confidence in Jesus' plan, even though Jesus had literally knocked the guys over. If he wanted to, he could take care of it. But he said, hey, this is God's plan. Just trust me, Peter. But Peter hadn't trusted Jesus. We know if you read the rest of chapter 18, he denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. The story goes that First, the crowds left Jesus. Then Judas left Jesus. Then Peter leaves Jesus. And then Mark tells us this. They all left him and fled. You know what all means? All left him. And you know why I believe Mark's account? Because Mark tells on himself. 
And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, that's Mark telling that he was there, too. And I, and I believe this is inspired because you wouldn't tell that on yourself unless God made you tell, you, tell it on yourself, would you? A young man was there. Mark was there, and he ran away naked and ashamed. Because what's the connotation for nakedness in the Bible, right? They were naked and they were ashamed in their sin. Just like Peter, full of shame, when Jesus saw him as he was led to be crucified, Peter cursed and denied Jesus, and then he wept bitterly when Jesus saw him. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, naked and ashamed, disconnected and distanced from God, everyone that followed Jesus had fled. They all unfollowed Jesus because he had proven to be an unreliable unremarkable, wannabe Messiah. Come Friday morning when the smoke had cleared, the crowds heard the Passover ceremony starting up and it was tradition that a prisoner be pardoned of their crimes and freed in the spirit of Passover in Israel's history. Pilate, who wanted to get Jesus off his hands as quick as he got him on his hands, Pilate wanted to release Jesus because he didn't like this whole situation. He felt like it was not being done justly and he wanted Jesus away. So he thought, hey, can I release Jesus to y'all because that's what y'all do every Passover? And over in chapter 19... When he says in verse 39, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Because he said, y'all just threw this guy a parade last week. Isn't this the guy y'all had a parade for? I mean, is this not your prophet? I mean, you, what, are, what are you bringing for me to kill you? And it wasn't just the priests and the Pharisees. It was all of the crowds. And they cried saying, not this man, but Barabbas. But Barabbas was a robber. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him or flogged him. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put, it, put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know I find no fault in him. I don't want anything to do with this guy. He's innocent. I've beat him up. I've hurt him. I've wounded him. He's going to limp for the rest of his life. Y'all take him. Pilate, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, behold the man. And Pilate was just arrogant. He didn't want anything to do with this. He was just thinking, man, this is too, I don't, why am I even involved in this? Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him. Crucify him. Can you believe it? In just five days, they go from Hosanna to crucify him. Everyone unfollowed Jesus. Can you imagine what it would have been like to follow Jesus 2,000 years ago? Maybe you don't want to imagine what it would have been like after all. Nobody quite understood what was taking place. People were convinced that Jesus was not who they once believed him to be. They had hoped him to be. Who was he? They didn't know, but he wouldn't be around long for to, wor to worry about. Once Rome was through with him, nobody would remember him. Everyone who once praised him were done with him. They felt burnt. They felt betrayed. They felt misled. They were angry. They wanted him dead. And maybe that'll teach the next one to be Messiah from deceiving them and lying to them and misleading them. Maybe the next guy that thinks he's going to fool the people into putting faith in him as Messiah, maybe he'll think twice about it because we showed this guy, we showed Jesus, we want nothing to do with him. And once Rome crucifies him, he'll be a forgotten fool. They forsook him and they fled naked and full of 
shame. But little did they know. Jesus was stripped of his clothes, flogged within an inch of his life, and was nailed to a cross. He would take on all of their shame and all of our shame. He took on all of humanity's nakedness and sinfulness since the dawn of time. He would take it on himself and there wasn't a single person here asking him to do it. They were all gladly doing it to him. Despite being unfollowed, despite being forsaken, he would follow through on every promise. He would not forsake us. He would not lose us even though we had all left him. He was going to the cross to fight for us, to win us back. He would give up his life if he had to, to break sin's curse and to remove every bit of self-induced shame. Though he was left alone, he was not alone. He was in complete control. Just like he said back in John 16, every one of you will leave me, but I will not be alone. But do not be, do not be afraid. Be of good cheer. I am overcoming the world. What kind of man, what kind of man would say to people that are about to abandon him, be of good cheer. I'm gonna do something to save all of you from your greatest enemies. What kind of man would say that to the people that are about to rat him out and bail on him and run away from him and potentially be in the crowds and shout crucify him. What kind of man would do that? More than just a man, right? Story's not over. Story's not over. There's still a cross for Jesus to hang on. All alone in darkness. And we'll get to that next time. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for preserving this story. Lord, I like to think about what it would have been like to have been there with Jesus at the miracle of Cana, at the feeding of the 5,000, at the parade on Palm Sunday. I don't want to think about what it would have been like to have walked away from him to deny him and to betray him and to shout crucify him. But I really don't have to think about it because in my sin and in my flesh, I've done all those things. In my flesh and in my sin, every time I've disobeyed you and walked away from you, I've said, crucify him, crucify him. I don't know what it would have been like to have been there, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have been on the right side of history and yet in spite of all that Jesus still went to the cross for me he went to the cross for everybody in this room everyone in this world even though we turned our backs he took he took the flogging on his back and put his back on a cross for us Everybody unfollowed Jesus. I would have too, Lord, because that's what kind of sinner I am. But thank you, Lord, 
from the bottom of my heart. And everyone here tonight, I think, would say the same. Thank you that the story's not over. And that you're about to do something for every one of us. To save us from our flesh. To save us from our sin. And to give us new life. To free us from this trap. And to show us just what Jesus is really all about. We ask this in his name. and Thank you so much. Amen.